Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sorry, Mr. Grim Reaper, but I'm not ready yet. She posted on the 18th of November, 2014. It starts with a quote from the Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants, which goes, not of dying really. It's more that I'm afraid of time and not having enough of it. Time to figure out who I'm supposed to be, to find my place in the world before I have to leave it. I'm afraid of what I'll miss. And then this is Chelsea's post. I cried, hunched over the steering wheel in painful, racking sobs. That conversation, everything I could have, would have, should have said, but will never say, played over and over in my head at ear-splitting volume. At my auntie's funeral, her husband began his eulogy. They say grief comes in waves. Well, I was never a very good surfer, so when the waves come, I will try to do what I've always done, and that is hold my breath and wait until it passes. Sometimes the waves still throw me under, roll me over and over, threaten to drown me. Still, I want to fight against them, find the sand beneath me and kick off for the surface. But I'm learning to hold my breath, let my body loosen and be tossed for what feels like an eternity, but may only be a matter of seconds." and simply trust that soon my face will break through the cold surface and find the sun again. I will breathe deeply, grateful for this breath and the life it brings, and swim out beyond the break again. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, now we're just a mess. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Just Make The Thing, a podcast of people who want to start a thing and keep on making it and are finding it tough or don't know where to start. I know it's been a while. My name is Claire Tonti. I'm really excited to bring you this interview today with Lucy Moffat, who just released her first book called Some Days, a memoir. Lucy is a listener of Just Make The Thing and she emailed me out of the blue and I was over the moon. Two great sayings, I think, to talk to her all about how she did it and also about her story. Lucy is a lover of Dungeons & Dragons, romantic comedies and K-pop. She is also exactly what this show is all about. She's an ordinary but extraordinary human who figured out a thing she wanted to do, a story that she had to tell, and then she just went out there and did it. She wrote a book, which is, I think, something that a lot of us think we might want to do and never actually do. The catalyst for this book was her friend Chelsea, who passed away at just the age of 24 and told her to write their story. My heart broke in this interview, but I also found it strangely, really, really uplifting too, and I hope you do as well. Lucy and Chelsea have a lot to teach about grabbing life by the balls for as long as we are here for, loving our people dearly while we have them, and ultimately facing the truth about ourselves and learning to love that too. Here she is, Lucy Moffat, on writing, grief, friendship, and finding yourself. 
Hello, Lucy. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. You it's are so good to welcome. Be here. It's so exciting to have you on Just Make the Thing. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you first, because you have written a book, mm. Some Days a Memoir. Yes. Tell me, how did it come to be in the world? Mm. So, well, briefly, the backstory is I was an extremely weird little kid. I'd had one friend in my whole life. I didn't have my brothers and sisters were much older than me, so I didn't have like any kind of social setting much growing up. And, you know, I started school and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how to make friends. And there was this one girl in my class who everyone who knew her all agrees, like she had this full on aura of like energy and light that just like draws you in. And I immediately was like, I want to be friends with that girl. (laughs) And so I tried to talk to her. And the first thing she said to me was, I don't want to be your friend, freckle face. (laughs) Oh, that's so mean. (laughs) Yeah, kids are wonderful, but they can be really terrible. Kids are horrible. (laughs) I mean, I was a teacher, I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that was that as far as I knew. But then I can't remember how this happened, but further into the term, we were talking about our birthdays and Chelsea and I, her name is Chelsea, discovered that I'm born on the 22nd of December and she was born on the 23rd of December, 1992, and that we were born in the same hospital and it was, we were like the only people we knew who were born so close to Christmas. And in our five-year-old brains, that was like the craziest coincidence ever. <laughs> and it was like, We were astounded enough by it that it just drew us together and we immediately became fast, fast friends. And that was the beginning of an 18-year wonderful friendship. But in high school, again, our very different kind of social personas kind of meant that we were quite separate at school. We, like, she was much more popular than me and she had tons of friends and I wasn't like a total loser or anything, but I wasn't in her clique. And so our friendship kind of developed on like sleepovers on the weekend and school holidays and stuff. Then like when you leave high school, as everyone who's left high school knows, like your social life really, really changes. And we didn't really see much of each other for a couple of years. But then around our 21st birthdays, we um, started spending a lot more time together and I realised how much I'd missed her and how great it is to be in her company. And so we started spending a lot more time together. And tragically, a couple of months later, she was diagnosed with very, very rare, very, very aggressive form of cancer. And so began a very different aspect of our friendship. And I kind of intuited very quickly that she would need someone and I could be that person. And I wanted to be that person because if you know, the worst should happen, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I had not been there when I could. So we, after having like our whole lives been kind of distantly friends, but emotionally very close, I started visiting her every week and we spent huge amounts of time together and, you know, talked about all aspects of life for the two and a bit years that she was sick. Um, In 2016, I went to study abroad in South Korea. And when I visited her before I left, she was really like, oh, let's not talk about cancer. Like, let's talk about anything else. I'm fine. Go have a great holiday and tell me all about it. And three weeks later, she was gone. Wow. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so I was alone studying abroad in South Korea when I got the call from her sister that she'd passed away. And I was four days away from coming home. Yeah, when, mm. when she passed. So somehow I got myself back to Adelaide and she wasn't there anymore. And, like, it was... I had lost people before but never someone that I'd loved so dearly and that even though she'd been sick, I'd never really let myself fully entertain the possibility that I would lose her. And so I was just completely blindsided. And So did you know she was that close to passing away when you left? No, I didn't. The only thing she said was, oh, like it's been shit at the hospital. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, like, and pretty soon after I left, things took a huge turn for the worse. But she didn't tell me initially. She didn't. She was so, she so wanted me to like be having great adventures and enjoying myself that she didn't want to tell me because she didn't want me to come home early. And by the time she did, I, don't, I still, like it just wasn't passing through my brain fast enough and then it was, it like suddenly changed and then it was all over. Yeah. That's so huge. Yeah. Yeah. And so the book really came out of me just trying to get my head around what had happened and trying to process the grief that I, I'd never felt before. Like I had no idea how massive it would be. And that also the desire to like preserve my memories of her because I knew, you know, eventually I'm not going to forget, but I'm not going to be thinking about it 24 hours a day forever. Mm. And so really it just started as like a word document diary where I just word vomited out everything I was thinking and feeling and slowly reworked it into something readable. <laughs> Did she know you were going to write a book? Yeah. So as I said on the cover, I've got a quote from her. She always had this kind of sense of humour about it that she was like, oh, well, you know, like I could write to Channel 10 and like get get put on like a renovation show or something and like get or win a free holiday or something, like sell my story. But I don't want to do that because I want you to write about it and I want, yeah, I want my story told by you and I and she was always like oh, then you can make us both famous <laughs> and I remember when after she was diagnosed but before she was having chemotherapy and she was still quite able to do stuff and for a while her life wasn't that different we were planning to write like a web series that was we were going to have like a sitcom that's like two friends <laughs> me one. and my dying friend yeah exactly <laughs> like try to because she was so always funny about it. Like she was always making light of the situation and we thought we could have made quite a funny show of like two housemates, one of whom has cancer and the other one has mental illness, (laughs) (laughs) which I still think is a good idea and I hope someone else writes it. I don't think I can be quite as funny about it anymore though. (laughs) I know because that's the huge thing, isn't it? There's there's an idea of writing Mm. a story about your friend Mm. but she's not a character. No. She's a person in your life that, that you obviously loved so much. Mm. What did she teach you about things? Yeah. The biggest one that really shone through when I was in Korea and I just found out that she'd passed away, there was this sense of like, I, I describe it to a lot of people as like, I could see very clearly that there were two paths. I could run away from it and I could, you know, take 
drugs or whatever to try and dull the pain or I could open myself up to it. I could take a deep breath, turn around and face it. And I think what Chelsea always showed me was that there's strength in opening yourself up and there's strength in turning towards the light, letting love in and giving love in any way you can. And, yeah, and I just I remember having this almost voice in my head being like just Chelsea loved the world. You know, she loved people. She loved travelling. She loved creativity. Like she was so open to everything that life has to offer. Do that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Open up. Let it all in. Let it all out. And, like, when you can, find the joke. Yeah. yeah. What was their funeral like? Oh, my God, she would have loved her funeral. Wouldn't we all like to say that? <laughs> yeah. It's like if anyone was going to have a funeral, like it was the dream funeral. It, they had the biggest chapel at the, like, biggest funeral home in Adelaide and every seat was full. There were people spilling out the doors. There were people, it, there were, like, two levels. There were people lined up all up the stairs. It was completely full. I think almost every single person from our year level turned up and... I think her Facebook page got over a thousand posts after she passed away, just of love and sharing memories with her. And everybody had unique memories of her because she touched everyone she ever came across in some vivid way. She had this beautiful white coffin with gold handles covered in exquisite flowers. And it was actually, it was a really, really beautiful ceremony. Yeah, it was a really beautiful day. And what was it like for you? It was, it was such a jumble, the funeral, because it was this beautiful setting. It was amazing that so many people were there. People were sharing really lovely words with me. And I spoke at the funeral. I gave part of her eulogy. And so I kind of had to hold it together because I knew I would be speaking. So I, yeah, so I kept it together. I sat with her family during the initial part of the ceremony but the moment I came off the stage, I just crumpled into my partner's arms and there was this amazing slideshow of photos of her. But I have almost no memory of it because I was just a mess. And then at the end, my fiancé and I kind of went out to find like a private spot and we just kind of held each other and cried. And once that wave passed, you know, people started coming up to me and speaking with me and sharing their memories again and that was really lovely as I sort of said, that Chelsea always had this attitude that there's always something positive, there's always something you can enjoy in any situation and there were parts of her funeral like that, that you know. Yeah, weirdly sometimes funerals are incredibly amazing experiences yeah. to be in. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, which sounds really morbid. It does, but then there are so few situations where you are everyone around you is being their most vulnerable and their most open yeah because you're all so close to mm. that understanding and I want to ask you about that too mm. we all die like yeah. our lives finish yeah. yeah yeah so has it changed your view of death completely I think because of my age I suppose and because of the privileged position I'm 26 now 26. so I was uh 23 when she passed away and because I'm a privileged person. I've grown up in a very privileged setting. Like I, of course, knew that death happened, but I didn't understand what it really is. You know, I'd never really seen it happen. And I, I had no idea how profound loss is 
and that even at that time when everything around you is full of life and growth and there's nothing but future ahead of you, that can go away. (laughs) Mm. That changes and in many, many different ways. But this was just the way that Chelsea Mm. experienced it and I experienced it. For me, when I lost my dad, it was the fragility of it. Yes. Like you suddenly feel like you're walking on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, totally. And everyone else is just ordering lattes Mm, and like coals, buying milk. And you're like, don't you know you could fucking die any day? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. don't don't you get it? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I... I sort of mentioned this in the book that the day that Chelsea passed away, I went for a walk through Seoul. Seoul is a, it's an awesome city. It's an exciting city, but it can be incredibly lonely place. And, and I, I was like walking through this park and yeah, I had that moment of, I was like seeing, you know, teenagers like kicking a soccer ball around or like couples on their first date or like women like chasing their kids around montage (laughs) yeah and it was like this like perfect sunny autumn day and yeah and I was like I felt like there was almost like a glass wall between me and everybody else because all I could think about was death but there was life everywhere around me and I remember kind of thinking like in movies and books and stuff people hate that they get really angry about that feeling and they want to shake everyone around them But for me, it was more like, even though right now all I'm thinking about is death and loss, there's so much more to life. You know, (laughs) there's Mm -hmm. so much more around, and eventually I will experience that as well again. (laughs) But before I lost Chelsea, they were completely separate things. Life and death were totally separate. Now, they're a lot more interwoven, I suppose. Yeah, you sort of, it's like that whole idea, it sounds cliched, that mm. you can't understand or fully embrace yeah. light yes. without understanding what darkness is. Yeah. Oh, yes, we're yeah. really getting Oprah here. But <laughs> I, I do think that yeah. the colours, understanding that our lives are final mm. and have an ending, whatever that ending, whenever it happens, yeah. colours your life with this kind of technicolour yeah. You kind of lean into like the chocolate brownie or the, yeah. Yeah. the experience of being with the people that you love. Yeah, more. definitely. And I think, and you're so much more conscious that the choices you make matter, you know, like, like there's, there's a limited amount of time. Life could be really short. It could be really long. So it's important that way too. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be doing something you care about. Yeah. yeah. And then, so then you get to a, I'm going to write a book. Because mm. I know yes. you talk about in the book, you've always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And it was something that's been there for you mm. from a very young age. Yeah. And wanting to create. And I think sometimes when we're, we label ourselves anyway as mm. odd as, t- as yeah. kids. <laughs> yeah. You sort of become a bit of an outsider yeah. in that you can then observe things mm. from a different standpoint maybe. Mm. How do you then, because that's a lot of pressure to be like, everything matters. <laughs> I'm going to write a memoir about the most <laughs> extraordinary heartbreaking thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> How did, did you just, did the words just flow and it used it, you, it was cathartic? Mm. Did you have moments where you were like, I don't want to do this? Yeah. Well, the first thing was that this was the first time I set out to do something without the end goal in mind. Like I've always been a very future-oriented, very ambitious person and and I have wanted to be a writer my whole life. And so I have set out to write books before, but I always got in my own way and my fears of failure or rejection or whatever would always stop me from following through. So with this one, I approached with a completely different mindset. I initially, it was, like I said, it was really just a diary and I 
couldn't think about anything else. So I had to write about it. You know, I had to get the thoughts and the feelings and the words out of me because I felt like otherwise I could never move forward. And so that first draft, I don't even know if I can call it a draft because it was like, I don't know, 30,000 words or something and was really just a mess of feelings on the page, was very easy to write. It happened in, I wrote it in a few months because whenever I was alone, it was all I was thinking about. And so I'd come home from work and I it was kind of, I could either sit on the couch staring at the wall, feeling awful and thinking about this, or I could make something from it. So that's what I did. And then I sort of wrote, I felt like that was all I had to say about it, but it still wasn't letting me go. I think the initial impulse to just write anything had kind of morphed into more of a solid idea that had kind of sunk its claws into me and I couldn't stop. I couldn't not write it anymore. So then I opened a new fresh word document and I started typing it all from scratch again with a much more structured mindset for it. That took longer because I was focusing a lot more on the sentences and the words and the intention behind it. But it's still probably less than six months it took me. When I finished that draft, I suddenly had this brainwave and I thought, I think this could be a book. Like, (laughs) it's not a book yet, but there's actually a lot in here that isn't only meaningful for me, you know, (laughs) that I'm I'm not the first person in the world to ever lost someone important to them. And I remembered the strong feelings I've had many times in my life, but especially when Chelsea was diagnosed and when she passed away of like, what can I turn to? You know, (laughs) I've always, I've always turned to pop culture to kind of show me how to do things that I don't know how to do. But there isn't a book about that, or there isn't a TV show about that. And, and so I, I'm sure other people feel that way. I'm sure other people have these moments when they feel completely alone. And they're not necessarily, (laughs) you know, we, we all experience this stuff. It's just so rare to talk about it. So I wanted to rework it into something potentially publishable. And that was when I changed the narrative voice from me writing about Chelsea to me addressing her directly. And that's when I included her writing as well. So she kept a blog while she was sick and wrote about her experience and her optimism and her hope for recovery. So I include in the book posts and passages from that blog. Yeah, so I rewrote it addressing her and kind of treated it more as one last conversation between us because that was really the definitive thing in our friendship all the way through but particularly in the final few years of her life that we just lay in her bed with like Bold of the Beautiful lot in the background and just talked all day without stopping and... That's the thing that I most often miss, <laughs> like just mm. just those t- like long winding conversations where we would switch from just like total bullshit to very big important stuff quite seamlessly and back again. Mm. Did you talk about God or a belief in what happens mm. after death? I think she particularly, and I share this, found the structure of organised religion really impossible and... We both we went to the same private Christian high school and I, the kind of authoritative male version of God mm. never, never held any real meaning for us. And I think as well as she got sicker, the thought of God and religion 
kind of came to be associated for her with inevitability of death because when she was really, really sick in hospital, they would send a chaplain to talk to her and she was always like, get out, (laughs) I'm not talking to you. (laughs) So we talked about that part of it, that struggle we had, she had, I still have with authoritative organised religion. For her, I remember once her saying, you know, like, it's like death is not going to be bad for me. Like, why would I? I'm not going to care. I'm going to be dead. (laughs) Like, She had this very, like, pragmatic mindset about it. And I think for her, it probably represented just a total removal from the physical pain that she experienced every day of her illness, but also just the, not just, but the emotional pain of living. Death would be like a complete relief. relief. And I think that's what I've embraced of that when I imagine her now, I imagine her in that state. And the chapter in my book that's about, I say it as God, but what I really mean is organised religion, was written quite early when I was, my grief was so angry and the kind of implication that I'd had that God would be, would help and would be a respite just didn't have, hold any meaning for me because it didn't feel like there was any respite. I don't feel, I'm not so angry now. I don't feel so strongly anymore, but I still, I don't think I can ever reconcile the injustice of her loss with the idea of an all loving, all knowing and all caring God. I just can't see how those two things match for me. Mm. And I think she felt the same when we talked about it. That's huge. Mm. Yeah. What do you think about energy? Because I know you said in the book that you felt her still with you though. Yeah. And particularly very initially, like when she first passed away, I had dreams about her that were so vivid all the time. And And I still occasionally do like make a comment like, I would say to her and can almost feel her response. And I I remember holding on to this feeling when she first died or this thought of, you know, that energy doesn't die, energy transfers, matter dies, but energy doesn't increase or decrease ever. It just moves between avenues, I suppose. That's not a scientific way of putting it, but that's how it is in my brain. And I took a lot of comfort in that, the feeling that, that enormous, vivacious life force that was her still exists in some other form, not as her anymore, but as something was a huge comfort. Mm. Maya Angelou and Oprah, well, Oprah talks about the idea that when someone passes, their energy is then up there somewhere in the universe, mm. kind of on your team. Yeah, helping I you. like that. Yeah. 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 And I, I really like that mindset and I've definitely had moments when I thought, oh, I, like, I, <laughs> I feel like, that, I feel like that, that had a little bit of Chelsea's kind of humour to it or if she was organising this, this is exactly how it would have gone. Or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Tell me about the sunflowers. Yeah. They're on the front of your book. Yeah, too. so they're on the front of the book. There's several reasons for that. In a purely literary sense, sunflowers have always represented kind of the – persistence of joy like they've got those really strong stems that can hold up these huge heads and so they represent yeah strength but also loyalty 
and of course that's a <laughs> that's a huge aspect of friendship and a huge aspect of our friendship is loyalty. There's also the fact that maybe I'm just talking about me, but I think most people would agree that it's almost impossible to not feel better if you're looking at a bunch of sunflowers. They just trigger hopeful, joyful feelings just to look at them. And that happened for me that the day Chelsea died, as I said, I went for a walk around Seoul and I was wandering completely aimlessly. I had no idea where to go and I was just walking the streets and I turned around a corner and right in front of me was this house that just had a row of sunflowers in full bloom out the front. And I had like tears streaming down my face during the walk and I just stopped and I laughed out loud because it was such, such a bright, optimistic, hopeful and joyful image that it was just undeniable. <laughs> and and I felt, and it gave me this feeling that Chelsea's presence used to give me of just energy and possibility and optimism and hope for the future that even though in that moment I was as low and as dark as I could possibly be, I knew that eventually I would be okay. You know, <laughs> eventually mm. I would be happy again. And and I couldn't help but feel like the total coincidences that had led me to that moment and the fact that they already existed. It's not like they grew out of nothing just because I needed to see sunflowers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But just the serendipity of it had a feeling of inevitability and like maybe she'd pushed me to walk in that direction. Yeah, well, because sunflowers yeah. tend to the sun, right? Yeah. They follow the yeah, light. Yeah, they do. They do follow the light. And and that's – it's just such a beautiful symbol and it's so like her <laughs> to do that. The other thing was I don't write about this in the book, but the friend I sent the book to first read it, like when I finished the third draft, she read it in like a few hours. And she called me and she was like, oh, my God, last night – when you finish the book, I had a dream that Chelsea was standing in a park holding a sunflower. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's wild. And yeah. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I, I just think the world is way more magical mm. and much bigger than we can possibly comprehend or yeah. understand. Yeah. And I, I'm happy for that to be the way it is. You know, I don't need to understand it. I'm just going to behold it and be in awe of it. Mm. In the book you talk about Patton Oswalt's quote, the mm. comedian who lost his wife mm. really tragically. Really tragically. And he says at the end of his Netflix special, it's chaos, be kind. Mm. What do you love about that oh, quote? I find so much comfort in the thought that it's just chaos. I understand why people feel better to think that there's order to the universe and that there's a sense of balance but I can't see that. And for a long time, I really struggled with that feeling of, is there something wrong with me? Why can't I see it? Or if there's a sense of balance, but Chelsea died, what does that say about Chelsea? You know, like I just couldn't wrap my head around it. But then I had this moment of like, what if there is no balance? What if good things happen to good people? Good things happen to bad people? 
bad things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and it's all just random. Maybe it's super morbid, but to me that's really nice. <laughs> like because it means you can expect good and bad and you can prepare for good and bad and you can be hopeful but also find strength when you need to. And that's the chaos side of that. The be kind side to me is just that's the power we do have. If it is all chaos, why be good? Because it's better. <laughs> like, that if it is all chaos, there's no reward for being kind, then it's even better to be kind. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that just I heard it at the right moment when I was grappling with this inability to resolve what I was feeling and thought, oh, that's good. Yeah, it's chaos, be kind, that's, that's ideal. Yeah, well, you never know what someone else is walking through. Yeah. When you bump into them and they swear at you in yeah. the supermarket or something. Yeah. Use a lot of supermarket analogies today. <laughs> you know, the, the, our immediate response can mm. be, oh, bloody hell. Yeah. Oh, God, that person it was mm. annoying or frustrating. Yeah. But you don't know you what's no going on yeah. behind that person who beeps at you at the lights or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, I love that idea. Be kind. My friend Ellen from another podcast we do called The Millennial Divide talks mm. about assume good intentions. Yeah, that's nice. And I like yeah. that too. Yeah. Though not everybody has good intentions. <laughs> no, but they're just part of the chaos as well. Yeah, correct. And I, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, I do really like that. Yeah. You just spoke about waves mm. and I want to ask you mm. more about grief. Mm. Because to me, that's how I experienced it yeah. in these huge, all-encompassing waves yeah. and then you're fine again. Yeah. What have you done to work through mm. those waves? Yeah. I, I outline in the book or mention in the book that just less than a year after Chelsea passed away, one of my aunties died very suddenly. She had a stroke and she was quite young. She was very healthy. It came completely out of the blue. And her husband at her funeral started by saying my grief comes in waves and I was never a very good surfer. So when that happens, please excuse me. I'm just going to take a breath and wait for it to pass. And that's all you can do. <laughs> well, it was all I could do was just take a deep breath, sit quietly and allow it to pass. You know, not trying to fight for the surface, not trying to run away from it, as I said, just knowing that right now that's happening, but sometime in the future it won't be happening. So I'm just going to sit here while it's happening and trust that I'll breathe again. You know? And mm. that, was, that was hard because I'm, I'm a fighter and I've always been a fighter and, and I wanted to do anything I could to not feel how I was feeling. But, again, there was just this bit of me, whether it's a just an, in, a, an instinct or something I'd read or something I'd learned from Chelsea was just to keep breathing and wait it out and trust. Mm. It strikes me too that in your 26 years mm. you've had a lot of life experiences mm. other, around other than Chelsea mm. passing away mm. too. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you write about sexuality in yeah. the book? When I first wrote it I was only going to write about my and Chelsea's friendship but as I was writing, I was realising that a lot of this stuff was interconnected and that my growing up had happened in these different ways mm. and they were all relevant and, again, they could all be 
important for someone else who read it. And so I do touch on um, my bisexuality, which I only really woke up to well into my 20s when I was already with the man that I'm going to marry and I will take those vows very seriously. But bisexuality has always been a part of me, always will be a part of me. And they, those feelings affected relationships that I, in ways that I couldn't understand while they were happening because I was so, I was forcing myself to remain blind to what those feelings meant. And like I reread old diaries from middle school and high school and I can see myself forcing myself away from that realisation. Mm, of having feelings for girls in mm. your class or yeah, like yeah, friends have, of, of yours? With, of, yeah, for, with feelings I had for friends and just that identity in itself as well. That, And I don't even know where that shame came from because I've never lived in a homophobic world. Like my my parents are not homophobic. Not, no one in my family is. One of my aunts is a lesbian and that's never been a cause of contention. I don't know where the shame came from, but it was so strong for so long that I, I remember the day it, I realised that I was bisexual and I just remember this wave of relief, like, oh, my God, that's, that's what that is. <laughs> Like that's what those feelings were. That's right. So you'd have really like <laughs> intense friendships. Yeah, I would have these yeah. really, really intense friendships and they'd be so wonderful and positive and then all of a sudden they would not be anymore and they would change quite dramatically and I would end up being really, really hurt. And and that that pattern repeated itself for years with lots of different girls and and I never understood why and I and I always thought, there must be something wrong with me. I'm too full on. I'm got, I've got these big feelings and I demand too much, so I have to cram that down. I have to be less. I have to be less. But no matter how much I crammed that down, it kept happening. And it wasn't until I woke up to my own sexuality that, well, from that day forward, I've had nothing but positive female friendships. <laughs> like, yeah. Because I'm so much more aware of the direction my feelings go in and I guess I, I protect myself better as well. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, God, it was a huge relief. Well, the more you know yourself, right, yes. the easier you walk yeah. through life. Like, yeah. That's why I think, that's why, and, I, and you write in the book too about mm. how ageing is actually such a wonderful, I mean, we say that now, oh, my God. Yeah, I like, I have this in our 50s but, and be oh, like, oh, yeah, we were such yeah. idiots. Now my boobs are at my knees. <laughs> You know, or whatever it is. I can't wait to be in my 50s. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, there is a certain point. um, I've heard some women talk about how it's almost a release Mm. for having to fit into some kind of male idea of attractiveness or whatever it is, Mm. that it's quite freeing once you hit that point. And I don't know what it'll be like, but there is something wonderful. The more that you know yourself, you Mm. know your body, you know what you need, the more you enjoy life because (laughs) you avoid the things that you know aren't good for you. Yes. You've put food in your your body that you know makes you feel good, Mm. but then it's conversely also you, yeah, protect yourself better. Yeah. You put yourself parameters around yourself. Yeah, Yeah. you 
you recognize the boundaries and you maintain them. <laughs> like, yes. that's amazing. Correct. That's, that's like a totally new thing yeah. for me. <laughs> in it's, like three years, I've it's learned really how to do exciting. That. I mean, I'm 33. It only gets better, mate. <laughs> yeah. For I can't example, wait. <laughs> I have realized I am terrible with time. Yeah. And I, and, and once, and this is so nowhere near as life changing as understanding your own sexuality. However, <laughs> I'm going to go with it and Let's, show you anyway. I want to hear it. Yeah. So I realized that some people just like people aren't very good with say spatial awareness and I'm not good, really good with that either. Mm. Or some people lean towards literacy sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Some people are more math, science orientated, whatever mm. it is. Yeah. I am terrible with spatial awareness and also time. And yeah. it comes hand in hand. And I read this study that actually that is an actual thing that people aren't good at. Mm. And once I understood that, now, whenever I have to get to somewhere on time, yeah. I ask my husband, can I feasibly do this, all these things, and get to this place by this time? And he's like, definitely not. That's so good. <laughs> and then you can stop blaming yourself. You can yes. stop being like, I'm such an idiot. Yes. I can't keep, like, I can't I control can't, time yeah. or I can't maintain good friendships with women in my case. It's not about your personal failure. It's just... It's just who you are. It's just what happens. Yeah, it's a quirk of your personality (laughs) or a part of who you are. And once you understand that, you can put in boundaries. Yeah. You can like and then practice. Recognize when those patterns are happening and you can do something about it. Yeah. (laughs) Rather than just seeing it through into the inevitable. Yeah, when you're an hour late and you like for on my case, when you're an hour late and you're mortified and stressed Mm. and like crying in the car because you have this like adrenaline thing yeah. going on where you can't and you don't understand how you managed to be late yeah. you had all the time in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. And I guess I think that's what, what is so lovely about ageing. Mm. You touched on shame mm. before. Yeah. From your childhood and you write about your father mm. and, and the impact of him on your life. Do mm. you want to talk us through a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'll preface by this by saying I have like the two best parents ever. My dad is an absolute hero angel and my mum is a fierce, like the most loving person in the whole world. They, as all people are, are flawed and have made mistakes in their life. They met very late in life. My dad was married and had two children who were kind of teenage. My mum also had a son but she was a single parent when they met. And my dad's marriage was already breaking down when they got together and mum fell pregnant with me. And that obviously sped things along. (laughs) And dad's life changed very suddenly, completely changed. They have been absolutely devoted to me, but my position in the family is strange because of that. My next older sibling's 12 years older than me and inevitably there has been resentment towards my mum and me because I I think particularly when I was a baby and a small child, I really represented my parents' mistakes and (laughs) what had happened. And I picked up on that because kids are sensitive and you can't hide stuff from kids (laughs) as much as adults think that they can, you can't. But I didn't understand it. I didn't know, you know, your parents are just your parents. Like I didn't know the context for it. And so as a little kid, I just knew that these 
random women that I would meet hated me and I didn't know why. And that has continued into adulthood, that occasionally still I will be somewhere with my dad and will run into a woman, and it's always a woman, who looks at me with this first confusion, but then it kind of turns very cold. And in the book I describe it as I can almost see the word illegitimate child, like, run through her eyes. And, I, yeah, and so I grew up with this feeling of, like, I don't fit into this normal family and then there's my dad and my mum and me, particularly me, tacked on the edge of a family. And that turned into a very, very deep, profound sense of shame that I still couldn't place. And so it was just kind of a part of me. (laughs) And so shame has always been a very present emotion in my life. And it often is the first response I have to things. And I think that plays a role in why it took me so long to come to terms with my own sexuality was that that dense automatic response of shame kind of clouded over so many parts of my identity. I wrote the chapter about that in a furious rush. I'd been with my dad at an art exhibition opening and the artist did that thing of looking at me, figuring out who I am and where I'm placed and then doing everything she could to kind of talk to my dad but shove me out. (laughs) And it's like this almost like adolescent girl thing and... Is that because she was friends with his wife? Yeah, well, she was friends with dad, I think, but knew him as married to his then wife and that was the context for their friendship. And I think for a lot of people it's just like if your sense of where things are placed gets muddled, you kind of respond in a very negative way. <laughs> so weird, isn't it? Because yeah. it's actually nothing to do with you. Yeah. It's everything to do with your parents. Yeah. But, or your dad. Yeah, yeah. But that I always felt that it was always targeted at me and my mum and she experiences it as well. Yeah. So I, so I wrote this chapter in a furious wave and I almost didn't include it because I've never talked about it. Like, I've never talked about it to my family. And I still, like, even right now, I'm like, how do I say this? Without <laughs> because, offending everybody. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody I'm talking about are people I, I genuinely love and who, as I've grown up, increasingly have accepted me and treated me as family. Did but... your mom and dad then get together or did it? Yes, yeah, so they're so still they're... together. Okay. They uh, have been happily unmarried for, like, 30 years now. Okay. And and that's kind of part of, like, my mum has said to me before, like, we've been together longer than Dad was ever with his ex-wife. <laughs> like, yeah. But I'm still treated as this, like, extra other woman in some ways. And I don't know, it, yeah, it's just, it's a very unusual situation. I've never met anyone else who's experienced that specifically yeah. the way I have, which, again, is part of why I decided to include it because I thought I'm sure... Other people have felt this. <laughs> there has to be. Do you think that your dad gets off a lot more lightly in the whole thing? Yeah, I think he – it's something he and I still really need to talk about properly as adults. 
He, in an external way, yes, in the sense of, like, how people will talk to him, people from his past will talk to him, probably friendly and very not friendly to my mum and me. However, when he read that chapter, he was like, I know exactly what you mean about shame. You know, he feels it on the same level that we do and has been, rather than working through his own shame about it, has been supporting everybody else through it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And that's him. Like he, my God, will be there for others to the end of the earth, completely forgetting himself. Yeah. And I think as much as on the outside he's not punished for it the way that perhaps we have been, I think the shame inside is just as profound. Yeah, just Mm. different. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... There are, it's an amazingly old fashioned gender dynamic <laughs> that I see of like the illegitimate child thing that like who would think that that's still something people care about, but I can say <laughs> with authority that they do. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It is so interesting. Yeah. yeah there's the sort of, the thing, I sometimes think there's the things that people say mm. about what they believe. Yes. And then there's the internalized, yeah. subconscious yeah. attitudes that they've held from mm. whatever cultural references, the way that they yeah. grew up, their yeah. religion, their family background, mm. culture, society in mm. general, mm. that you know, I guess it's the same with sexism and racism. Mm, yeah. And, you know, on the surface, most people would like to say that they weren't any of those things, mm. but there's a lot of internalised stuff yeah. that comes out. I mean, I find that even in myself sometimes. Yeah, totally. You know, and I think well, women particularly for a lot of reasons have lived in a society that's quite patriarchal. Mm. And so we ourselves have reactions to things and often I think hold women, other mm. women up yes. to a much higher standard yeah. and kind of go, oh, well, he's a guy. He doesn't really yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, he can't help himself. Yeah, oh, yeah, you can always, yeah you can always excuse my old behaviour, but, my God, women should know better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. It is It is yeah. so interesting. So mm. what, what have you done to unpack? Because obviously you talked about mental health too. Mm. Yeah. Do you see psychologists? Do you have strategies in place to yeah. kind of help you with all of that? I should see a psychologist and I want to find one. Mate, I you've been through so much. <laughs> what are you doing? It's okay. This yeah. has been like a like a welcome to my couch <laughs> therapy session. Yeah, and that's kind of like I think for a lot of people that's conversation with me as well. I'm kind of <laughs> Yeah, it's like welcome to my my couch. Yeah. But I for me it's always been writing, you know, and like all my diaries are full of almost like essays because I sort of have always sat down to write about what I'm feeling and I don't stop until I reach some kind of resolution. Like, And so I've always kind of not done it on my own in the sense that like no one's ever helped me because I've had plenty of help, but I tend to prefer to work through stuff at sort of with curiosity. I guess I approach it with like what is this about and where is it coming from? What is it affecting how can I resolve it? Which I'm, I'm sure is what would happen if I went to therapy as well. No, but, but I, I tend to do it. Genuinely, it is. Yeah. yeah, it's just your own voice talking yeah. until you solve yourself, yeah. and then you pay someone like 150 dollars. <laughs> yeah. So you've just found a way to do it for free. Yeah, yeah, and that's... then also create art out of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, there definitely have been moments where I'm like, man, I would really like to have a professional person in my corner who could, like, tell me what to do right now. But I just haven't 
I'm, I'm like that about like do- doctors as well. I just put it off in ever like forever. <laughs> yeah, though, it's so what unhealthy. Happened to Chelsea as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why not. I yeah. There, it's not like any opposition to it. I just never got my act together and saw someone. <laughs> Life is hard. There's no time. Yeah. There's no time for anything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's no time. No, I had a book to write. (laughs) Exactly. Had a book to write. You had a cover to design. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No time. And getting engaged. Yeah. Oh, tell me how you got engaged. Oh, it's a good story. It's a good story. So uh, last year, my partner and I were living in Japan. We did a working holiday and lived in Tokyo. And while we were there, we uh, really wanted to climb Mount Fuji. So we set aside a few days to do that and we arrived... You start like halfway up the mountain at like midday and we climbed until about 5pm and then stayed overnight in a mountain hut and it's like one room with like this massive bed where like 30 people sleep (laughs) and um, and we slept there until like midnight and then we got up and climbed the rest of the way so that we could arrive at sunrise and when we got to the top, the sun hadn't quite risen yet, so we kind of walked around for a while and sat down. And then Jordan said, oh, just, like, stand there. I'm going to go ask someone to take our photo. And the sun was coming up. We were, like, at the top of Mount Fuji <laughs> and surrounded by clouds. And then, yeah, he got down on one knee. <laughs> and there's very low oxygen at the top of Mount Fuji. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and he was like, oh, stop, you need to breathe. Like, calm down. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he proposed at the top of Mount Fuji, which was very, very spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds amazing. Yeah, it was very, it was very, very nice. <laughs> I love it. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, mm. happy Congratulations Thank you. for getting married and all those things. <laughs> and um, what's the surface like now? The surface is beautiful. I, I, my life has become what I always hoped it would be and didn't know if I could expect. I'm getting married to an amazing person and... I wrote a book <laughs> and it's real. It's here. It's I here. I can hold it. I can see it on a shelf. It's real. It's unbelievable. I'm surrounded by incredible people. You know, when Chelsea first died, I felt like I'd lost my only friend in the world. But, oh, my God, the way that the women around me stepped up and have been there and they're all glorious women I'm so lucky to be surrounded by the people I have. My family are wonderful. My friends are beautiful. My partner is a superhero. And, you know, there will be times that won't be wonderful, but right now the surface is beautiful. What advice would you give to Mm. someone out there who has a thing Mm. that they want to write or make or do and they're stuck? Enjoy what you're doing and do it because you enjoy it. Even if it's, I mean... Despite the subject matter, writing this book was a joy because writing is a joy for me. That was the reason to write it. I mean, this bit is awesome. (laughs) Having the book is amazing, but if that was the reason I was doing it, I don't think I ever would have finished it. Enjoy what you're doing. Do it because you enjoy it. And that's enough. If that's enough, you've won. Even if you never publish or even if you never win an award, whatever. If you love doing it, 
that's plenty. Yeah, it's that curiosity, right? Yeah. So don't take it too seriously. Yeah, because life is short, so you want to make something, but life could be really long, so you should enjoy making it. Yeah, yeah. give it a bell. Yeah. It doesn't have to be good. No, not at all. Oh, my God. It could be awful and it could never see the light of day, but if you love making it, it's worth making. Absolutely. Okay, well... Congratulations. And your book is certainly not terrible. It's great. It's <laughs> oh, really nice. great. So congratulations. Thank you. And I hope I want, I want to see some more. Yeah, me too. Have you got plans? Yeah, it'll be very different. I don't, I'm very tired of myself as a subject. I don't think I've got to write more memoir. Probably fiction. I hope fiction because I miss fiction. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Building wheels in your head. Yes. Thank you so much, Lucy Moffat. Thank you for having me. Thank you for um, just making the thing oh. and getting this book into the world. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's huge. Oh, it's, yeah. It's so it's huge. Awesome. I've said huge a lot today. <laughs> but getting, getting something you have thought about for a long time and then becoming it and having it in your hands, mm. I can't even imagine... The joy that must yeah. the satisfaction. Yeah. It's such a joy and I, I'm i just so glad that I did what my instincts were telling me to do, what Chelsea told me to do and made something beautiful out of something terrible. And, you know, I wish she was here to see it, but maybe she is. <laughs> sure she's around somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Tonti, and this week with Lucy Moffat. Her book, Some Days, a Memoir, can be found at all good bookstores and online. She's also speaking at Mitcham Library on Wednesday the 22nd of May at 6.30pm, so you can go and check her out there too if you're around in South Australia. Okay, I love doing this podcast because I get to talk to some really incredible creatives. And if you scroll back through my feed, you'll find interviews with Claire Bowditch, with Will Anderson, with Luke McGregor and Celia Pocola, and lots of other incredible writers and um, podcasters as well from around the Planet Broadcasting Network, which incidentally is a podcast network that I run with my husband, man, James. And you can find out more about that at planetbroadcasting.com. And if you want some stories from me, I'm I'm doing a little bit less social media at the moment because I don't know, is it good for our mental health? I'm not sure. But if you would like to follow me, I would love to hear from you over at Claire Tonti on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email the show at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com if you would like to tell me something or share something with me, or if you are someone who has made a thing that you would like to talk to our audience about. That would be brilliant please leave a review if you like the show. We would love you to do that. Um, And you can listen for free through Apple Podcasts and subscribe there. Go on. Okay. Have a great week, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.